Well, we're glad that you're with us this morning, and today we're going to continue with our study of the abundant Christian life. Now, we've been looking at some things that you need to be sure are present if you want to live this abundant life that Christ has called us to. And today, we have something that some of you would really be excited about because you're experts, and you know the truth of what the Scripture says about this particular topic. So we're going to begin by taking a look at a verse of Scripture, and it's Luke 6.38. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 6.38. Luke 6.38. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now let's take a look at the context of this verse. Look back in verse 27. Here we have five things that we are supposed to do as believers. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then in verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. And then that's followed up by the golden rule, verse 31. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. Now, if you go down to verse 35, you'll see that we get a great reward. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That sounds like giving to me and your reward will be great. Not only that, you'll be known as the sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind and merciful to evil men. And then verse 36, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You're going to have great reward. You're going to be known as a son of God, and you're going to be able to reflect God's character. Now, those are not the only five things in the Bible that we do. That's just a reminder of some things, especially when those come along who oppose us. In other words, we want to treat others the way we want to be treated. Now, as we read that verse about shaking down and running over and all that, that doesn't mean too much to us. But let's imagine that you were in the uh, Galilean market there, and you were getting ready to buy some grain, and you would buy your own container. Things weren't prepackaged in those days, so you had to bring some to take it home in. And there would be some haggling with the seller. I'm going to play the part of the seller. We don't have to haggle because it's all in a package, and you have a price tag on the package or either on the shelf, and you have that um, little thing that they scan there that tells you what it costs when you get to the checkout counter. So we're not so worried about price tags, but we know what the price is already. Now, if you notice on anything you buy, what we buy is sold by weight, not by volume. And it'll say something like, the contents of this package are sold by weight, not by volume. The contents will have settled uh, during shipping or whatever it says. In those days... Whatever you bought, grain, whatever it might have been, was sold by volume, not by content. So the first thing you would do is agree as to what the price is going to be. Now we've got a bowl of grain here. 
Here is some Judean hill country barley. And so we've agreed to what we're going to pay. And we're going to pour this into our little bowl here. Now, I'm not going to pour it out all over the table. But if I pour it all in there, probably couldn't get it all in there. But the first thing I'm going to do is press this down because we're buying it by volume. So I want to get every bit of barley that I can possibly get for myself. And then after that, we're going to shake it together. And if you could see this, it's uh, getting a little closer as we shake it, and there's room for more shaking together. And then we're going to pour until it runs over. Now, the seller, the merchant, would have a little pouch uh, probably attached around his waist, and he would carefully scoop up everything that ran over. But when this came right up to the top and then it was running over, you would get your full measure of whatever it would be. So there's our verse. Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So what he's saying there is if you give, God gives back to you. God uses the measure that you have used. If you're stingy, God's going to be stingy with you. If you're generous, God's going to be generous with you. Does it say anything like that anywhere else in the Scripture? That you be blessed for giving. How about Proverbs 3, 9 and 10? Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shalt thou barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst forth with new wine. Another one. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. And in that key verse from the New Testament, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, we know it well. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus as he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, we're going to see here, if you give, you will receive. And then Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, 23. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Now, I would remind you that the Lord uses means, certainly. And if a person is diligent and they work hard, there's a greater probability that the Lord is going to use their effort, especially if he is working as unto the Lord, he's going to bless that effort. They'll have more to give. And that's what God likes to see. A good supply of giving so that everyone's needs can be met. Now, Yvonne and I grew up in families who were givers and were tithers. And that was a great blessing. I didn't think about it much back then, but since that time, I've thought about it a good bit. And then uh, we had a pastor early in our marriage who was a great giver. And here was his philosophy. Body needs a certain amount of money to live on, whatever that may be. But when you get above that, you can just use it to supply the need for the Lord's work. 
And you can invest in missions and the church and in everything that may be going on. So Yvonne and I listened to that, and we thought that sounded pretty good. So in those days, we weren't just giving 10%. We worked on up to about 23%. And it was great because the Lord really blessed that. I know that some of you know about giving. One of the most amazing things that God did that exceeded abundantly anything we could have thought was when He provided for me an office in Birmingham. And I may have told the story before, but I decided since I lived 50 miles out in the country that I needed a place in town where I could meet with people. Could have done that at our church, but there were over 11,000 meetings a year at our church. And you had to sign up on the uh, docket there, and you met and met in a different place every time. And that was a little bit difficult to schedule. I needed some place where I could meet with people all day long for several days of the week. So I finally heard about a guy who was a believer, and he had a little office space to rent there. And it was $100 a month. And that's about all I could afford at the time. And I went over to look at the place, and it wasn't anything just uh, delightful, you would say. But um, I told him I'd take it, and I gave him a check. Then, a couple of days later, Mark and Lucy were just a little boy and little girl, and they were with me. And I took them by to show them my new office. They were not too impressed. <laughs> Mark said, the wall needs painting. Lucy said, it smells like cigars in here. And perhaps that was because the Marine Corps recruiter was next door on the same air conditioning system. But I thought if we have some difficult counseling and they can't get it, we'll just let them enlist in the Marines and that'll, that'll solve their problem. So they came home very uh, discouraged. And I thought, well, they're probably right. This really doesn't look too good. And so about that time, uh, my neighbor down the road out in the country told me about a large company in Birmingham that was going to be moving soon, and they were getting rid of a lot of office furniture. So I went down to see about getting some office furniture because I'd paid my month's rent, and I was going to just bite the bullet and do it. So I needed a desk and a chair and just various things like that. And I went into this place and I talked to a guy that happened to be the vice president of this large insurance company that was home based there in Birmingham. And he said, well, tell me what you're doing. And so I told him that I meet with people and do some counseling and do some discipleship and so forth. And he happened to be a Christian. He was a relatively new Christian. Now, new Christians sometimes are really enthusiastic. And he said, man, that's great. It sounds like you don't need just office furniture. You need an office too. And I didn't tell him anything about my other office. And I said, uh, yeah, I probably do. And he said, well, look, we have a training room here in our building that we use maybe twice a month when we have a meeting of all our personnel. And you can use that training room. And it's got a copy machine, telephone. It's got everything you would need in there. And you just tell people where you are, and they can come here, and they can meet with you right here in the Moulton Allen Williams building. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. And it was. It was amazing. The building was open early in the morning all the way through until the evening so it could meet any time of day. And then I began to see as I came in a lot of scurrying around in the building, and I saw some huge sets of blueprints. And things were being moved, and I wondered, uh-oh, 
these people are getting ready to move and I'm going to be left with no office. So one day I was there and Mr. Ritter called me in and he said, you know, we're getting ready to move and we want you to go with us. And I thought, wow, that, that's delightful. He said, we're moving out to Liberty Park. Now, Liberty Park was amazing. It was a brand new, being built office complex. Huge acres and acres. And this urban center was the first building that was built there where they would be. And it would have a really nice training room. So on the day that came to move, we moved out to Liberty Park. Now the amazing thing about Liberty Park was from my house out in the country, I could get to my office without a single stoplight. Pretty amazing. And so <clears throat> I had some office furniture and I moved it in there. And I met there in the training room. As soon as before I got the furniture, I just used the furniture in the training room. And then I had a young couple who came through the marriage preparation course. And this guy worked at Liberty Park. And he worked in the office of <clears throat> the park manager. And the guy who did all of the hiring and firing and who did the leasing and the whole deal. And so Peter said one day, you know, could you use just a private office? I mean, besides the training room? And I said, well, I'll just use whatever the Lord sends. And he said, if you don't mind moving around, we'll just give you the next vacant office because we're going to have a lot of them because this place is new. So I said, well, I certainly don't mind moving around. And I got together some furniture. And uh, <clears throat> he said, when we get ready to move you, we have a crew of guys and they do all the moving and they'll just come in and move your furniture over to the next place. We'll tell you where it is. And you just set up there. From that time for a period of about um, five or six years, I had offices all over that place. It was incredible. I had an office one time that was larger than this room. I could have set up a putting green in my office. And I was just over in one little corner with a screen there. And people who came there were amazed. What are you doing here? So this is where the Lord put me. And that was a tremendous blessing that I never could have even considered. And I think that that's just God saying, you know, you can't outgive me. I'm going to show you what we can do. That's what He promised, that He would do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Now, there were many other things, but let's take a look and see three categories of people. Givers, takers, and wasters. You can think of some famous wasters in Scripture. The prodigal son was a waster. Here was a guy who asked for his part of his dad's inheritance, and the Bible says he wasted his substance in riotous living. Now, he didn't want the inheritance to open up a business or something like that. He wanted to live a profligate lifestyle and just let the good times roll, which he did, until his stomach began to growl. And at that time, he somewhat came to his senses, began to think about what he had done, and went on back home. We know the story. The foolish virgins were wasters in a sense. They wasted a marvelous opportunity to get in on the wedding festivities because they didn't make preparation with the oil that they were to need for the wedding ceremony. So they were left out. And of course, they represent people who are unprepared for the coming of Christ. 
or when they go to meet Christ. Who would fall into the taker category in Scripture? How about King Ahab who had his neighbor Naboth murdered because he wanted to take his vineyard and make it a vegetable garden for his summer palace in Jezreel? We know what happened to Ahab as a final result of that. He was a fatality on the battlefield of a guided missile that uh, hit him in the war with the Syrians. And then we see another taker. Judas Iscariot was a taker. He took care of the money bag for the disciples. And whenever he needed a little extra cash, he just dipped in the till and pilfered the money that the disciples had to do their business with. Let's do a little comparison here quickly. A giver practices diligence, initiative, responsibility, thriftiness. He's always on the lookout for some needs that he can meet. A taker is probably a little bit discontent unless things are coming his way. He's sitting around thinking about things that he doesn't have that he feels like he would really like to have or he needs. A waster takes steps. He is um, a guy who is ready to initiate a plan, legal or illegal, to gratify his desires immediately. He seeks pleasure. He wastes resources. Well, a giver is enthusiastic. He usually has a positive attitude toward things. A taker is enthusiastic when it comes to receiving, but he's kind of mild to lukewarm when it comes to giving. He kind of goes with the flow on that. He might put in a dollar in the plate or whatever, but he's not real excited about it. The waster is a negative guy. He's mumbling, grumbling, complaining, criticizes others. A giver, of course, looks for ways to serve others. A taker waits to be served. He likes to minimize his involvement in work. A waster reacts against work. He serves himself and tries to avoid all kinds of work. Well, a giver is grateful. He has gratefulness instead of covetousness. Instead of desiring what somebody else has, he is grateful for what he does have. You can think of David who writes in the Psalms about his great gratitude to God and his thankfulness to God. A taker takes things for granted. He is presumptuous. And I think David's son Solomon might have been a little presumptuous because he broke every one of the three rules that God gave to kings. Don't multiply wives. Don't multiply the military, horses and chariots. Don't multiply riches, silver and gold. You begin to depend on those things instead of depending on God. A waster expects things. A giver looks for God's blessing. A taker looks for the path of least resistance. A waster looks for instant gratification. And finally, a giver is generally a cooperative person. A taker is competitive, competitive for rights and recognition, complacent in initiative in giving, and a waster may be contentious. Now, we're not interested in takers and wasters this morning. We want to check out some great givers, and we want to clear up a gross misconception that you find in churches and among some professors of Christ who may or, not be, may, or may not be possessors of Christ, but when you mention giving at the church, everybody thinks about money, American money. They're asking for money. Well, we're going to see in Scripture that there are many more things than you can give that you can give besides money. 
And some things are more important than money. Giving of ourselves would be more important. Now, I don't want to minimize what God says about the pocketbook. He's interested in your pocketbook too. But He gives us a great portion, uh, 90% at least, to do with what we need. And part of that in my pocketbook belongs to Him. So we do want to be careful about that. But think about Abraham. Abraham was a great giver. He gave a huge track of land to his nephew. It was the Jordan River Valley. It was the fertile land. And Abraham was willing to make a little sacrifice there, take the land that was not as fertile, not as inviting as what he gave to Lot. But certainly God blessed Abraham's generosity. And God made him a wealthy man. Sometimes God directs those resources to those that can get it where it needs to be. And I remember Dr. E.V. Hill always saying, if God can get it through you, He'll get it to you. So Job was a righteous man. He specialized in charity. He gave to provide protection and provision for the poor, among other things. Took care of his family. Barzillai was an elderly man in the Old Testament. He gave bedding and supplies and food to David when he was escaping from Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion. Later on, when David was on his deathbed, he recalled the kindness of Barzillai the Gileadite. And he expressed to Solomon the need to take care of Barzillai's children in response to the man's kindness to him. That's in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 7. That's the kind of lasting gratitude that should characterize the recipient of giving. Sometimes we're on the giving end, sometimes we're on the receiving end. Boaz gave some barley and a few kind words to a young lady named Ruth. Now, giving helps in many ways. Let's just put some things up here. Let's say giving helps. The recipient, obviously. Ruth and her daughter-in-law, excuse me, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth needed some things. They had come back from Moab. There had been a famine. And uh, they were in dire need. And here's the way the Old Testament law prescribed that people should do things. People didn't always do it, but this was the law. Suppose this is your barley field right here. Well, you glean the barley field like that, and then the poor people can come in here and glean the corners, and there will be plenty for them, and you won't need social welfare from the government. So obviously it's going to help the recipient, uh, Ruth and Naomi. It's going to help yourself. Boaz got a pretty good deal out of this. He got a beautiful young bride and everyone could see that the Lord had blessed. So in that case, we have the observers. It helps observers because they can see God's blessing on those who are givers. It's uh, obvious. No matter what you're giving. Then the 
church. And the Israelites in the Old Testament could see God's blessing upon Boaz for what he had done, and they could rejoice in God's goodness to a daughter of Israel, that God is going to provide, that God has established this. Oh, that would be in Leviticus 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And if they followed the law, God was going to bless them. And He certainly blessed Boaz, and the people could see it. Then not only the church, but the community. And the community could see that if you followed God's ways, God was going to bless that, and things were going to be provided for. But how about this? Giving helps God. Does God need any help? Well, He doesn't need any help in ruling the universe, but He's chosen that we might be able to help Him with what's going on down here. We can help Him with evangelism. We can help Him in meeting the needs of the body. And when we do, God takes notice of that. How did Boaz help God? Well, through the lineage of Boaz and Ruth, you know, came two great kings, King David and King Jesus. And that was how God had planned to bless this man, bless his family. He didn't know what was going to happen in the future. All he knew to do was be kind to this young lady and be a giver. And not everybody was like that. Think of how much grain you could get out of the corners of the field. In ten years, you might be wealthy just getting God's part for the poor. Nehemiah gave leadership. You remember, he gave leadership to pray, to present the vision for rebuilding the walls, to gather all the materials, to deal with the enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, those guys, and then to supervise the rebuilding of the wall itself in 52 days. There was a guy who was a great giver in the matter of leadership. Zacchaeus gave money. You might say he owed it. Yeah, but he gave more than he owed. You remember, when he got saved, he said, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anybody unlawfully, I'm going to pay back fourfold, fourfold restitution for that illegal tax money where he had overcharged them. Wouldn't it be something if President Obama issued one of his executive orders that he's going to pay back fourfold for all too much taxes that anybody had to pay? Dorcas in the New Testament, you remember her, what did she give? She gave good works and acts of charity, sewing clothing for widows and those in need. So Paul gave ministry. And we've read about that many times, how he was hungry and tired and traveling and working so hard, we won't even take time to go over all that. Cornelius, the Roman centurion, gave to the Jewish people devotion, alms, prayers. He even saw a vision, go get Peter, bring him in. And all that was before the guy was even saved. And Peter came and salvation came to Cornelius. God takes account of these things. Barnabas gave encouragement to everybody, including Paul when he had just become Paul after having been Saul. And then we said God is our example to give sacrificially for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then another verse in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but who delivered him up for us all, will he not with him freely give us all things? What should be the proper perspective of the giver? Give so I can get more for myself? No, give so I can get more to give. And this thing just keeps growing. It's kind of like the pyramid scheme, except it's based on God's unlimited supply. And He can just keep giving as we keep giving. Several reminders here. Four, in fact. First is, you go first. Let's uh, put that over here. You go first. God likes to test our hearts. He knows what's there. But He wants us to see what's there. So, uh, you go first. He said, give, and it shall be given unto you. And God likes to, for us to see what's in our hearts. Are we, are we giving just so we can get? Or do we just trust God? And do we trust Him with the time frame? Because when you give, it might be a while before the big blessing rolls in. Number two, giving requires a sacrifice. Giving generally requires sacrifice. Uh, you give something that you could have kept for yourself. It might not be a great sacrifice, but generally it requires sacrifice. The story is told of a hen and a pig who were talking in the barnyard one day. And the annual um, Brotherhood Breakfast was coming up the following Sunday. And so they wanted to make their contribution. And the hen said... I think uh, we could give the brotherhood, uh, I could give some eggs and you could give ham and they would have ham and eggs for breakfast. And the pig said, I don't think I'm interested in any memorial gifts today. I think what the brotherhood really likes is fried chicken. (laughs) Well, the point of that is giving sometimes requires a little sacrifice. We may have to give a little ham when it comes our time to give. But uh, God can help us with that too. We have to die to self. And then number three... There is much gain to be derived from giving. And I'm not talking about that the treasure comes rolling in, but it gives us a good feeling down inside. We're more blessed when we give than when we receive. A blessing is anything that draws us closer to Christ. And then, uh, well, let's ask the question. What is God's perspective on giving? Paul had just received a gift through Epaphroditus from the Philippian church, and he has this to say, The things which were sent from you were an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Their gift was well-pleasing to God. And it was helpful to the Apostle Paul. So, uh, giving has to be accomplished through a right heart attitude. It's not putting my quarter in to see what I'm going to get out, but a right heart attitude. As is anything we do, really, should come out of a heart of love for Christ. I'm giving as unto the Lord. I'm not giving so I'll be well thought of in the community or anything like this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Listen to this. But this I say, says Paul, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But how do we know what he's talking about? 
Sounds like it might be farming or something. So and see. Next verse. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's the heart attitude. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, might have an abundance for every good work. All grace, there's the source of our giving, God's giving to us. All times, there's the time frame for giving, always looking for needs that people might have. All sufficiency, there's the quantity of supply available for giving. God has all sufficiency and He wants to make that available to us. And then all things, there's the scope of God's intention in our giving. As it is written, next verse, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now may He, that's the Lord, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Again, thanksgiving to God through us because we're giving. We have all grace at all times for all sufficiency in all things. Well, that's the New Testament. How about the Old Testament? Malachi 3.10. Very familiar verse, but I want to ask if anybody knows 3.11. 3.10. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's a pretty good return on investment. Pouring out a blessing that's overflowing, that's pressed down, that's shaken together. We don't even have room to receive it. What do you think that next verse says? Pretty important, especially if you're on the farm. 3.11, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not devour the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. I will rebuke the devourer of your bank account. I will rebuke the devourer of whatever it is in which your wealth happens to be stored. Well, if giving is so great, why do so many Christians miss out on giving? A couple of quick reasons. Some don't know how. They had no model when they were children to really to learn how to give. That's where a child learns to give in a home growing up. Maybe a lack of love and real concern for others, and that goes hand in hand with number three, self-centeredness, lack of contentment. This is instilled by everyone through our culture because our culture is based on advertising that there is something there that you need that you don't have. Now, I'm not against advertising, and certainly the free enterprise system is far better than anything I've seen in the entire world, but we have to be careful that we don't let that disturb our contentment. Lack of trust in God and His promises. If I give it all away, I won't have enough left for myself. John Bunyan once wrote a poem, and in this he had to say, There was a man, some called him mad, the more he gave, the more he had. Well, that's the way it works in the long run. And some don't think they have anything to give. We've already mentioned a lot of things that we can give that don't even pertain to money. If you had zero to give, you could still give the gospel and you could give the entire counsel of God right from Scripture as you were 
uh, seeking to counsel and encourage people. Well, quick review. Giving helps the recipient. His needs are met. It helps yourself to become more like Christ, a kinder, more generous person. It helps those who observe. We don't give to be seen by men, but we might want to give to be seen by little children in the home because they need to understand about that. Not in a braggadocious way, but so that they can learn. Everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. It helps the church. It's a mark of Christian love. The best evidence of love is sacrificial giving, giving the needs of the body. It helps the community. Uh, giving to those in the community uh, helps the community to understand that Christians care. And we need to be a little more expressive, maybe, of the things that we believe with regard to Calvinistic work ethic and uh, the matter of giving. These things go together. Karl Marx really missed it there, in my opinion. This is not some compulsory thing that the government does. This is a voluntary thing where people give out of the love that's in their hearts for other people, Christian and non-Christian. You can read about what they did in the Scripture in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. That was a voluntary thing where people gave to others to help them out. It was certainly not communism or socialism. Number six, it helps God as sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. God has chosen to use us. How about this verse? It talks about that. How shall they call on Him in in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So there's where our giving comes in. Now, final question as we conclude. What if I gave and gave and gave and everything caved in and I lost everything I had? I'm glad you asked that question. Some of you might have heard the name Maxie Jarman. Maxie Jarman developed his father's company, the Jarman Shoe Company. And he developed it into Genesco, which in the late 1960s largest apparel company in the world. He took it from 75 75 employees to 75,000 employees. He was a wealthy man, and he loved to support the Lord's work. And he supported missionaries. He supported all kinds of things. He was on, for a while, served on the board of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Team. But there was a financial crunch that came along, And Maxie lost a lot. He lost most everything. And a friend asked him at that time if he regretted all the millions that he had given away over the years. Oh no, he replied, I never lost a dime of what I gave away. I only lost what I kept for myself. (laughs) So his philosophy is, um, is interesting. Let me just read to you his financial philosophy. I think contributions are more necessary for the individual giving them than they are for the organization receiving them for the very reason that money and material things are dangerous things. And it's extremely important to be generous in gifts and be sure we're not a slave to our material things or that they become too important in our lives. Liberal contributions are one way of taking care of this problem. 
Well, you can be the recipient of a great gift today. I hope you already have the gift. But from time to time, people decide, I didn't really have the gift, but I want the gift. And the gift is salvation in Christ. And if you already have the gift, you can demonstrate that by becoming a generous and cheerful giver in all things. Get ready for a blessing because God has great blessings in store. We've seen the promises. If we had another hour and a half, we could get the testimonies of God blessing a giving. If you're already a great giver, you are indeed a wealthy person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the testimony in Your Word of those who were great givers. We know that's an integral part of the abundant life. Uh, we want to be blessed, and we are blessed when we give. We thank You for people that we have known, even people present here in church today, who are great givers. And we ask, Lord, for Your blessing upon them, upon us, as we would seek to become great givers. Uh, Lord, we have much to give uh, with which You have endowed us. And we want to always give a word of encouragement. We want to give a good word to people who may be uh, struggling with some things. We want to give a word of counsel. We want to give out Scripture verses. Uh, Lord, there are many, many things that we can give. We pray that we might be aware of the needs of others. And we pray we might be diligent to seek to meet those needs. Thank you for the amazing truths of Scripture. And Lord, give us courage to apply them in our lives. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.